Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this day. I thank you that we are here. Lord, I thank you for your word and the truth from your word. I pray that you would just guide and direct this morning as we look at it. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just open our hearts up to uh, analyzing ourselves, Lord, and seeing where these things may be necessary to apply to our own hearts and our own thoughts and the way we see and view the world. Lord, I pray that you would just help us in that regard. Lord, in all these things, we just pray for your spirit to be poured out on us in a very real way. Lord, in the preaching of the word, in our singing, Lord, in our uh, listening this morning, I pray that your spirit would be present and real. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. I'm going to be honest with you, I've had a struggle the last couple weeks I told uh, my wife the other day, I feel like I've lost my groove. I just can't. I'm having this hard time when I sit down to finally start writing the sermon itself. It it feels like writer's block, and I I hate to say it, and maybe you're going to hear this and you're going to go, wow, what's wrong with him? But it feels the last few weeks it's felt like work to write a sermon, right? And I know that you're probably thinking, well, you shouldn't be a pastor then. Unfortunately, that's the way it is a lot of times. It feels like work. There's a labor over these things. And it's been a challenge lately for me. I just, I think, I think part of it was we took that break and getting back into Luke. Uh, and I hadn't thought about that until I was talking to Paul about this. And I think getting back into Luke, trying to get back into, there's a big overarching story that's going on in Luke. And it's the story of Jesus. And, and trying to get back into that and capture, okay, what the, is this about? In fact, it was, it's interesting as, we look, as I look ahead, the next several chapters is just Jesus teaching. I, I'm kind of excited about that. He's just going to start talking, and the next several chapters, it's gonna be, he's going to teach about this, and he's going to teach about this, and he's going to teach about this. So the next several Luke sermons for actually quite a while, and knowing us, maybe the next 10 years. I don't know. But for quite a while, it's going to be just the, the teachings of Jesus. That's kind of neat, isn't it? Just what, how, if Jesus was teaching us, what would he be teaching us about? What would he be saying? All those sorts of things, and I just love that. But this that we're in today in chapter 11 is just kind of on the tail end of right before we get to this part of just teaching. And he's already doing some teaching right here, but it's kind of shifting around back and forth between some different situations. In fact, this one he's gotten private and alone with just a particular group of Pharisees. So what I'm going to do today, I want to I go back, I want to review last week's text just briefly, talk about what that text said, not the sermon itself, but just the text. I'm not going to hit the points that I hit, I'm just going to, here's what the text said. I will then cover the new part of the text with some explanation and commentary. So I'm just going to go through it, this is what it says, this is what it means, here's some thoughts behind that, what these things are about. Then I hopefully, at the end of that, there's an application, Okay. There's an application that I think is, I I can give you a hint at right now. And in fact, I was thinking about this. I hadn't thought about this until, in this way, until, again, what Todd was saying, talking about the the darkness. It's interesting, when I, I hear people talk about that, I've found that many of you have a nod of agreement, like, any of you in this room, if I start talking about, do you, do you just feel like there's a lot of evil stuff going on in the world today? Yeah. In fact, would you say that it feels like, and whether or not, whether or not you could prove it or not, some of you, you like to prove it, and you're going to go down all these rabbit trails of trying to prove it. Let's leave that to the side, but let's just think about this. How many of you feel like it just seems like it's been worse than it's been in my lifetime? 
Anybody feeling that way? You know, it, it's, and so I, I, with that thought in mind, this text became important in my head while we were, when we were going through this and singing that last song. And I thought, you know, the key to this text, the key to understanding this text is that the Pharisees were the ones who had this up to that point. In our case, that's us. Next week is going to be, Jesus is going to get even more specific with his disciples, referring back to the Pharisees. He's going to tell them, beware, okay, of the leaven of the Pharisees. There's a reality that you can think, and I think that this hits at the very core of, and this is going to start building that application in your own heads. There's a very real danger when we have the truth of thinking that's all we need. Right? Thinking that what God has called us is to just know more than they know about God. Does that make sense? Like as if what God has called us to do is just to be, be more knowledgeable about God than everybody else in the world is about God. And that's exactly, what, that's exactly why we need to stop and go, it's not some great victory just because you know the truth. And Jesus drives in at the very heart of what I think is trying to crouch and pounce on every single one of us. Because it's very easy when we know the truth to look out at the world and go, they don't know the truth, we know the truth. Thank God I'm me and not them. Right? That's where the Pharisees were at. And there's a danger that we are facing even now, even as it gets darker in the world, I think even more so we need to stop and go, hold up. Are we really, is it just, is it just good enough that we, just, we, we heard it and we know it? Like, is it just good enough that we can look out of the world and go, they're wrong, we're right? Is that it? I think there may be some more that needs to be attacked. And you're going to see as we go through these things, these Things that Jesus says to these Pharisees strike right at the heart. Now, you know where I'm going because the next part, it talks about these scribes, these lawyers who knew the word. And their response, if you remember from last week, as they're hearing these things about the Pharisees, what they say? Do you remember? Wait a minute. You know, when you say that, you're insulting us too. You remember that? I got to think of this week, and I thought, you know, what's interesting about that is that might actually be the key to understanding how we ought to hear this. We ought to, maybe we ought to hear this and have that response like, whoa, wait a minute. That's kind of hitting home. And if you need to use the funny voice, feel free. Hold up. Wait a minute. <laughs> okay? All right. So let's go through real quick. Let's just go back through the text from last week about these Pharisees, and if you if you feel the need to break into I don't want to be a Pharisee song, that's okay. We can do that at some point if we need to. Luke chapter 11, I'm going to go to verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And so this Pharisee is shocked that Jesus did not do this. This, this is not just cleanliness. This is not permission for all the kids to go, well, Jesus didn't wash his hands before he ate. That's not what this is about, right? Please, if you've got dirty hands, wash your hands. Did you hear that, Liam? Wash your hands before you eat. 
but this is not what this is not what was going on here. This was a ceremonial washing, and Jesus specifically did not do it. He was not called to do it. The law did not say you had to do this. He was not breaking the law. He chose, I think, he chose not to do it to bring some things to their attention. And so he doesn't do it. This Pharisee is just shocked, appalled that Jesus didn't do it. And Jesus responds, and it says, verse 39, And the Lord said to him, uh, Now, you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside, and we know this from last week, he's talking about them, right? They had great... uh, you know, ways that they went about making sure that their dishes were cleaned inside and out. But he's like talking about them. You're like a, you're like a dish, he says, but inside you are, full, you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? I mean, you cannot, I think, ultimately what Jesus is telling them, you cannot separate the two. If you think just making yourself presentable to the world presentable to those people that can see you is enough. Jesus is clearly just taking a machete to that thought process, isn't he? No, that's not how it works. You can't separate the outside and the inside. Everybody knows this. If you pick up a cup and you go, this cup is clean, and inside it's full of filth, nobody really thinks that's a clean cup. In fact, you might probably say that's the more important part. I'm less concerned about the outside than I am about the inside. And so Jesus' point, I think, is just so clear. His solution, he gives a solution. He says, you fools did not, he who made the outside make the inside also. Then the solution, he says, give as alms, giving, the way people give to the poor. Give as alms, he says, those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. In other words, I think he's saying, give, give not just of what you have, but give of all of who you are. That's a great starting point is what Jesus is talking about. Give of yourself, right? Not just on the outside, but give of yourself. And that thought of giving, Jesus goes on to verse 42 and pronounces a woe on these Pharisees. He says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe, right? Give 10% of mint and rue and every herb. So they're, I mean, they're getting the, the minutest of details. They're making sure that they're doing everything God has called them to do. We're supposed to tithe. We're going to tithe. We're going to tithe everything that we've got. And Jesus says, you do this tithing, but you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done. Done what? The justice and the love of God. You ought to have done those things without neglecting the others. So they've been neglecting the big things making sure they were doing the little things. Jesus' solution is what? Do justice. Do the love of God. Be dedicated and devoted to those big things. Right? This is what you ought to have done, he says. But then he says, but don't neglect those little things. Last week when we discussed this, it was brought up. I thought, you know, it's interesting how often there's a connection between the big and the little things. Little things are purposeless without the big things, are they not? If you get the big things, and you know the big things, justice and the love of God, the little things gather and gain purpose. But people who focus on the big things and neglect the little things are powerless. This powerless loudmouths, right? Justice and the love of God, and you're not doing anything. See, there's a, there's a connection with these two things. In fact, 
I, I mentioned last week that John Piper described it, and I, I thought this was a great illustration. It's like the ceiling in, or the floor in the ceiling, this giving of these things. And he brought up this question, and I proposed it to you as well. I mean, what, what if uh, we as a church, this church, where all of us were giving, tithing, right? We're giving, we're doing these things, but with the intent and the hope of justice and the love of God. What kind of church would that kind of church be that had the little things were happening with a focus on the big things, right? And I think that's a great, great way to be. He then, from this, he pronounces two additional woes. Verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. In other words, they're, they're craving. And these two, he does not give a solution to. He just says, Woe to you because this is how you are. You love the greetings. It's interesting. I didn't share this last week, but there's some historical evidence that these greetings were could be very elaborate. They were very specific greetings that were given. And so it was like a badge of honor to obtain if you could get this kind of greeting. And so they would sought to get certain greetings in the marketplaces, um, get the best seat in the synagogues. He says, then woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. And this last one here, as we talked about this, and this one's going to be important as we hit these uh, lawyers, these, these scribes as well. The Pharisees, because of this, Jesus is saying they went from thinking, they're, 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 they're trying to bring about cleanliness and holiness in God's people. And the reality is Jesus says, you're like graves in an unmarked grave caused a particular problem for a Jew because if you walked across the grave that was unmarked and you encountered it, you didn't know it, you were unclean for a week and you wouldn't even know it. And what Jesus is saying is, you Pharisees, you're, you're messing, basically, you're messing everybody up, not just yourselves. You're, you're like unmarked, you're like graves that have not been marked and people, when they encounter you, they walk away worse than they were before. What an indictment that would be. Like Jesus is saying, you think you're so great, but people that encounter you are worse than they were before they encountered you. This is the Pharisees. And I imagine the, you know, it's, let, me, let me pause. It's interesting because the Pharisees, in so many ways, they were right. Their doctrine, what they knew and believed about God was right. In fact, if you can compare them to the Sadducees, there's some serious problems with the Sadducees. Pharisees, in so many ways, they were, they were spot on. And I think there's a lot of us that we are spot on theologically. The Pharisees' problem wasn't what they knew. It's how they took it and applied it to the deep issues of their own hearts and lives. I think a key now is to react the way the lawyers did. Right? Can you, can you picture this lawyer sitting to the side? Now, I want you to understand, lawyer, don't think typical lawyer. We're talking about a scribe. In, in these days, there was, there was the clear governmental Roman court system. You can see a little bit of this in the crucifixion of Christ because you see this system. In fact, you see them kind of going back and forth between the two because there's also this religious court system. There was the Jewish law that had all kinds of religious elements to it, not, but, but some moral elements and some what felt like governmental elements, but then they had the Roman law that was this, and there was a lot of weird overlap. We don't have that in our society, do we? They had that. There's this interesting, weird, overlapping law sort of system. So these lawyers, 
if we were to think of them this way, these scribes, they knew God's law. That's what it was about for them. So there was some overlap into some things that we'd think as governmental kind of law, but a lot of it had to do with this religious laws, how the people ought to be living. And so these lawyers, they were the ones, these are the ones that studied and learned this book, right? Without the New Testament, they, right? They were studying God's law. They wanted to know what does God require of us. They were the ones that people went to, and they would have fallen into the camp of the Pharisees, religiously speaking, right? They were of the Pharisee party. And so, can you imagine this Pharisee or this uh, scribe sitting there listening to these indictments against the, against the Pharisees? Because those Pharisees, in some way, shape, or form, where had they gotten those teachings from? These guys. And so I think that this, in fact, I imagine him, I have no way of knowing this, but I imagine him slowly starting to think, like I imagine when Jesus first starts talking, he was probably like, yeah, Jesus, he's so smart. He's so, wait a minute, that's kind of, but, oh, that, well, that, okay. And you, but you, oh, mm. And finally, he can't take him more than what's he do? He goes, Hey. <laughs> wait a minute <laughs> you know it's kind of that feeling like i resemble that remark right i mean it's like at some point he's like wait hold up i you realize in saying these things and that's a, this is a very strong word this word insult i mean it's it's an attacking sort of word and it, this this lawyer this scribe says wait you know you you do know this jesus right when you said that that hurt me too when you said those things, that hit really close to home. And, and notice, he hasn't been addressing it to them, but they picked up what he was putting down, right? And they recognized this is an indictment on us, and you're insulting us, Jesus. And I just love, love, love Jesus' response next. He doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry. He doesn't even say, I'm sorry if this hurt. I, he doesn't say... Well, you know, if that, if that was tough, I, I really, you know, what, wasn't my intent to do that. And so, you know, I really hope that you can understand that. I wasn't really talking about you. No, he doesn't do that either. You guys ready to see what he does next? If you've got your Bibles open, you already know what he does next. And he said, <laughs> in case there was no shadow of doubt before, he goes, Oh, you think, I mean, I, I don't at all think Jesus was ever snarky. And please understand that. I have a trouble because I tend to veer into snarkiness a little bit. I don't think he was ever like that. So I have trouble reading this myself without it sounding a little bit snarky. I don't think Jesus was snarky, but he was very bold. This scribe just said, hold up. You're insulting us too. You do know that, right? And he, just, he doesn't go, yeah, I know it. He goes, Okay, woe to you. In case you weren't figuring out that I was talking about you too, great sadness and sorrow ought to be on you guys too. And so I think in some way we need to stop and go, okay, if any of this stuff is hitting home, would Jesus do that? Like, would we go, would, would we be in this situation? We'd be going, Lord, you know, you're saying these things about the Pharisees, and I agree. I hate those Pharisees. All right. Anybody ever read the Bible and go, oh, I hate those Pharisees? You ever, you ever do that? Look, be honest, it's okay. 
You ever did? Paul's like, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I do too. I mean, they're sneaky, aren't they? Sneaky and snaky and just, just so, right? Would we, in our times of speaking with Jesus, would there ever be a time where we said, yeah, those Pharisees, Lord, I don't know. And would Jesus ever go? And this is the question I want you to try to ask of yourself. Are any of these things actually hitting home? Is Jesus actually not just talking to them? Is he talking to me today? That's the question, is it not? Can we do that? Can we at least be like this scribe who says, wait a minute, that hit home? Would we need Jesus to go, okay, Woe to you, people of Edgewood, as well. Would we need that, or would we be able to pick up what Jesus was saying? All right, so now, there's basically three chunks that he addresses to these scribes. Are you ready for it? These might hit close to home. I know that some of you were talking earlier about the tough weeks you've had. And I'm getting up here, and I'm getting ready to... My intent is not to bash you on the head with the word of God. But if it does hit home, that's okay. There's a free grace in Jesus Christ that is actually a kindness when you recognize your sinfulness. And you go, Lord, thank you for showing that to me. Right? Okay. Woe to you lawyers also. For you load people, so here's the first condemnation on these scribes. You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So you're loading up burdens that are difficult to bear. They're hard to bear, the heavy, weighty burdens, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. This concept of what he's talking about can be found in other places in the Bible. In fact, I think it, a gr- there's a great section. If I had more time, I'd look, I'd look at it. I encourage you to look at it this week. Mark chapter 7, verse 1, basically to the end. If you just want to take a look at that, there's very similar context where Jesus doesn't just deal with this, but also even the, the, the washing of the hands and all these other things are talked about by Mark in that section. And I, if we had more time, I'd go to that. But there's this idea of what he's addressing here dates back, in fact, it echoes back to many of those Old Testament prophets. Let me pull up one that you might be familiar with. Hosea 6.6, he says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What's what's the Lord talking about in this Old Testament passage? He's talking about really essentially the same thing, that there's something that God was not just calling for this, this outward show of sacrifice. There was other things at stake. The Old Testament is full of examples like this. In fact, this particular uh, passage, Jesus is known to have quoted it at least two times, Matthew 9, 13, and also Matthew 12, 7. Matthew shares both times that Jesus quotes that Hosea passage. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's what that steadfast love is about, mercy or grace. And he says, for I came to call the righteous... Uh, not to call the righteous but sinners, the, in Matthew 12, 7. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Getting close to that time where Christ is going to go to the cross, they've condemned the guiltless. But here's the thing. 
both of those passages, or that one passage from Hosea is speaking back to something that dates even further back than that. Right at the very beginnings of the nation of Israel, with their very first king, one of the issues that that first king had, king, anybody know what the, who the first king was of Israel? King Saul. Good. Oh, good. I heard some young, yes, good. You guys knew some Bible truth. All right. So, yeah, I wish I had candy. I'd throw it out at you right now. Um, so King Saul, one of the issues that King Saul had was this same issue. There was an attempt to put on this outward show. In so many ways, he fit the mold. I mean, he was kingly, noble looking, right? In so many ways, he fit that mold. And you see him, one, t- one case in particular where the prophet Samuel had to address this, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. He, Samuel says to him, has the Lord... As great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Is it, is it just that? Is, that? is that? Is God so, I think, so superficial? As long as you go through the motions, is that what it is? No. And so this is something that plagues humanity from the beginning. I think if you could go all the way back to the very beginning, you would find similar things addressed. In fact, there's one person in particular we got two brothers at the very beginning. I think the exact same issue is at play. Those brothers were Cain and Abel. And Jesus is actually going to mention Abel in just a minute. But this is the issue that may be addressing us. Now, with this particular thing, there's two possible meanings. Every single commentary I read said, what Jesus is talking about, let me go back to the passage, when he's talking about loading up people with burdens hard to bear, but not lifting a finger. What was Jesus actually referring to? And there's two possible meanings that Jesus could be referring to in this a little bit more specifically. Both of them have to do with hypocrisy, right? But let's take a look at those two meanings. The first meaning is this. The hypocrisy that, the, that these Pharisees and the scribes are doing is about placing burdens on people without helping them to perform them. Okay, so this is one possibility that Jesus is attaching it. I think this could be placing burdens on people without helping them to perform them. It's this heavy weight of religious duties added to the law that they did, which burden the people and actually direct them away from God. This can be found even today. And so let's hit one that I think you're all going to be like, yeah, okay, you want to hear one like that? How about those, how about those churches that seem to add all these extra rules on that you're like, that's not, it's not in the, right? Let me, can I, can I just be, can we throw some out there? You want some examples? How about, how about the church that says, um, the, all the women you need to wear dresses? You ever heard of a church like that, right? Or you have to do this, you have to do this, you got to make sure you have this. And all of a sudden, there's all these extra little rules that are thrown in, things that the scriptures don't clearly teach. Now, you know, if somebody goes, I think we should do that because of such and such a reason, if you have that personal conviction, that's one thing. But these scribes were taking those personal convictions and adding it on to the law so that the list was extensive. We have records of these pharisaical laws that were just extensive. I read one to you last week about the washing of hands. Do you remember? It was like, and then you wash it, but if the water drips down this way, but then you haven't done And it was like, it was so much. It was too much to bear. And so Jesus could be addressing this issue, adding those things in, but not lifting a finger to help. We see this a little bit in uh, Mark chapter 7. He says to these uh, uh, Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, he says, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, 
but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, what? The doctrines of God? No, the commandments of men, and lifting and elevating those things up to that level. I think that this could be what is implied here. I think another way that you could take this could be this way, and this one's going to be a little bit more, I think, where we might struggle. How about this this situation? Well, we're not adding things in, but we're compounding. This is what God says, but we're not lifting a finger to help. Let me give you a couple examples. How about the single mom? Right? This is a very real scenario. What about the single mom? Is the world expensive to live in? Is it? Taking care of kids, is that expensive? Yeah. Kids aren't free. You're expensive. Do you know how expensive you are? Cost money. Even you get them out of your house, they still keep costing you money. Uh. Mm-hmm. So, so what happens if I, as a pastor, I, I say, say a single mom starts coming to church here, living with a living boyfriend, right? And I say, because God says, that's, that's sin, that's wrong. One of that mom's concerns, I think that's a very real concern, is if he goes, what goes with him? Paycheck. His contribution. How am I going to make it if he goes? Now, if I indifferently go, that's your problem. You got yourself in that mess. I think that I may fall into this category. What's one way that I could address that? We've got a guest bedroom. Until you can get on your feet. If you want to get out of that sinful situation, I want to help you every way I can. I think that maybe that might hit a little bit closer to home, not just something that's out there. right? We like to grab these Pharisees and categorize them in a way that's out there somewhere. What if not lifting a finger to help isn't about just adding extra things on? Even though we know they did that, what if that's not really, what if it's about, what if we don't do that, but we just lay out the laws of God, but we don't lift a finger to assist? How about the pastor on that same note? What about the pastor that says, work, you need to work for your living. You don't work, don't eat. That's what the Bible says. You ever heard that one? It's true. Is it difficult to go from dependence on governmental assistance to self-sufficiency? Oh, my goodness. Who are we to go, well, you, that's what you, you need to, are you ready to lift a finger to help? That's the question. If you don't want to be a, I don't want to be a Pharisee, right? Here's one of the things, I don't want to be a, these scribes, they knew the word. And maybe you're sitting here and you go, I know the word. And I know that that's wrong and they shouldn't do that. Well, what are you doing? These people that you're ready and willing to cast judgment upon and you're not willing to lift a finger to help. You're sitting there in your lazy boy chairs going, people just need to get off his butt and do some work. You could help, right? You could help. What could you do? I don't know. 
Well, ask. What can I do to help you? I would love to help you get from point A to point B. How about the couple that's struggling in their marriage? You can just go, tough it out. This is why, by the way, one of the reasons why we believe in biblical counseling here, because I believe the Bible is full of how to do those things. What about the person struggling with same-sex attraction? The pastor simply condemns it without offering hope or grace. No, that's not how we ought to be. There's hope. In fact, one of the greatest hopes of that is I'm no different than you are. We're all sinners. We all struggle. There's all, every single one of us in this room has desires that God may say no or not yet or never. That's part of being in the flesh. This sinful flesh, we all struggle with desires that want to define who we are. And God calls us to be defined not by those things, but by his son. And is there grace and hope that we ought to be offering to people? Absolutely. And I think maybe that's what this is about. The second meaning that this could take, not just unwilling to lift a finger to help the person, but there's another possible meaning that could be this. The the hypocrisy was about placing burdens on people while finding ways to avoid those same burdens themselves. We know the Pharisees were guilty of this. I mentioned Mark chapter 7 earlier. Let me go back to Mark chapter 7. You can see the other one played out. I mentioned this last week. Jesus said to these Pharisees, he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. That's fine, Pharisees. For Moses said what? Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. That's what Moses said. That's the law. But you say, Pharisees, they had a way around it, and I can't help but see the, the ink of the scribes on this. Woo, I've been studying. I found a loophole. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you should have gained from me is korban, that is given to God. I've dedicated this to God right? Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. This is just one example. In other words, Jesus says, so these, instead of taking care, so my, my mother-in-law, father-in-law, my parents, where's my, there's my mom, where's my dad at? Is he back in the back, dad? There's a call for us as children to take care of our aging parents. Amen. <laughs> there you go. Right? There's a call to do that. That's an important thing that we ought to do. We want to be looking for and thinking in advance how, when, as they get to that point where they may need some extra help, I want to be ready and jumping in. That's a command of God. It made it in the top 10. Okay? These Pharisees were like, oh, I gotta, I gotta, we got a way around. I mean, they're gonna, they're gonna suck me dry. These parents of mine. And so these Pharisees were like, wait a minute, I got, because they were employed in, to a degree by this religious, I could dedicate this to God, and I bet they said it that way, to God, right? And now that it's dedica- dedicated to God, I can go to my friend, I can't help you with this, it's been dedicated to God, right? 
But they were living off of it. I shall now, with this dedicated to God money, go buy my hot tub. <laughs> For God, of course. This could be a meaning as well. Knowing what God says clearly and finding loopholes around it. Finding ways to get, well, I know, I know it says, but uh, to be honest with you, I think both meanings could be implied here because they're both hypocritical in nature. And both of them are burdening others and making it easy on you. A key here. The word of God is not given to us to be that burden in such a way, the way the Pharisees were bringing it to people, the way the scribes were presenting it to people. If ever I get up here and me telling you what God has called you to do ends up just feeling burdensome and that's it, period, I think I might be missing it a little bit. There are some things that we hear that are challenging and burdensome, but ultimately the burdens that Christ has for us are light because they're all within that scope of God's great grace through Christ. None of them are for obtaining righteousness, and that's the key difference with the Pharisees and a Pharisaical religion and what God has called us to do, right? That's the first woe. Let me hit the next one. Oh, gosh, I'm taking way too long. Next one, woe to you. Woe to you, he says. So the first one, second one is this. I'll see if I can go quickly through this one. Woe to you, for you build tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, he says, because you built the tomb. So there's the prophets, they die. And there's actually a, a, a tendency to do this at Jesus' time period where they build elaborate monuments to prophets. That it wouldn't be necessary that they even knew for sure that was that particular prophet's body, but they'd build this, this is the tomb of such and such prophet, and they'd build these tombs to those prophets. So your witnesses, he says, though, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. They killed them, you build their tombs. Ow! I, I imagine that they might be going, yeah, but we're trying to honor. I've, I heard a little quote in one of my commentaries that captured, I think, the heart of what Jesus is saying to them. One of my commentaries put it this way. He says, the only good prophet is a dead one. I mean, it's fine, that prophet being the prophet that he was, now that he's not here and saying it to me. You see? Or maybe Jesus was saying basically this. They killed the prophets. You're going to make sure they're dead. I think this is evidenced because as prophets began, who, who was the most recent of, I would say, prophetic figures that had come into the world that they were in just before Jesus? John the Baptist, right? Very much in line with those Old Testament prophets. Did they honor him? No. Hmm. See, it's, it's easy to sit here and think and open up our Bibles and find those things. And yeah, I mean, let's, let's think about it broad scope for a second. Those stupid Israelites... They just saw the Red Sea open. What's wrong with them? Right? Those disciples, they saw Jesus walking on the water. What's wrong with them? See, it's real easy to post event, but what about when you're in it? How do you respond then to the prophetic word? That's the question at stake. How do you respond now to the prophetic word? 
if God looks at you and says, oh, you're real nice on the outside, right? But inside, there's something else going on. You know it. God knows it. And maybe even some of the people closest to you know it. But you act like it's not true. And you ignore the call of God to repent and just come clean. They killed the prophets. I'm going to make sure they're dead. I think we see this today in so many ways. But let me go on with the text here. It says, therefore also the wisdom of God said, so Jesus goes on, he says, the wisdom of God said, now the, the little side rabbit trail note, this wisdom of God said, there's no known quote that we know that Jesus is quoting from. So you might think, oh, is he quoting from this passage of the Old Testament? There's some ideas of maybe where it could have come from. And so we, we have it in quotes as if he's quoting something from the Old Testament. There's actually, we don't know where this quote came from. I think it's even possible this could be literally the wisdom of God that he's quoting. As of yet unwritten, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, and we're going to see it again in the New Testament. As God sends those prophets, he sends those apostles. Some of them will be killed and persecuted. Jesus is now predicting what's going to happen And he says, why? So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. And I think he's just nailing in on this this issue that's been from the very beginning. And this marvelous thing that I love to spend time just chatting about. All of this is going to be charged, he says, against this generation, the generation that he was talking to. He says, from the blood of Abel. Who, Who was Abel? You guys remember who Abel was? Yeah, Cain's brother, Adam and Eve, had Cain and Abel. Did, what happened with Abel? Was he killed? And his blood cried out. Jesus lumps him in. So I think he's using this word prophet very loosely in the terms of people who are speaking on this is what God has for them. And in some way, shape, or form, Jesus just declared Abel is a prophet of old. Right? And he goes to the blood of Zechariah. This one, we don't know which Zechariah. There's three different Zechariahs he could be talking about here. Um, we can look at the other gospel accounts, and it says he was the son of Berechiah. There's thoughts that he could be the Ze- There's a Zechariah in Second Chronicles, which is interesting because if it's that Zechariah, that was the, the way that they constructed their Old Testament. The last of the books was Second Chronicles. And so you had Abel at Genesis and this Zechariah in Second Chronicles. So basically he's encompassing all of the prophets from the first one to the last one. All of them who perished, all of that will be charged against this generation. I can't help but think of the parable when Jesus talks about the, the vineyard and he sends these people and he sends these people and he sends these people and he finally says, I'm going to send my son. Surely they'll respect him and they don't. I think that this is what's being mentioned here by Christ. He's saying, that all of that rejection over all of those generations from the beginning of the world to now, it's going to come to a, a terrible fulfillment now that Christ himself has stepped onto the scene. Because these people, as we're going to see before this chapter is done, are not just going to say, we don't like what you're saying and you're insulting us. They're going to go, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you is what we're going to do. They're going to ultimately reject the very 
son of God himself who came to save them. In fact, he says this to them in the rest of that verse. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation, and I think that it was. Partially, the moment they rejected Christ himself and sent him to the cross, we see a partial fulfillment in what happened in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed in their temple. Everything that they would have said is the greatest, wiped out. To this day, no temple. That generation, it was required of them. But this also speaks, and I, there's so many, you have to understand, there's so many prophecies that speak not just to one thing, but to two things, and sometimes three or four things. And this is echoing not just at this, but at what will come as well if you reject Christ yourself. Let's close with this last woe. I can go through these last ones quickly. Oh my goodness, it's 10 till noon. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. I'm just going to give you a quote from Daryl Bach, who summarizes this statement this way. For those who see themselves, these Pharisees and these scribes, for those who see themselves as instructors and protectors of the truth. Let this hit home. This is particularly devastating accusation. No one enters the house of the knowledge of God through them, is what Jesus says. Think of all the truth these scribes had about who God was, and Jesus just basically said, you're not going in, and you're not helping anybody else get in either. God protect us from ever having this accusation pointed at us. Don't pat yourselves on the back just because you figured out the right doctrinal statements about everything, right? These guys had it, and they were missing it entirely, and they were causing other people to miss it as well. And then it closes with this. Oh, oh, I don't have it up there. The last two verses say this. As he went away from there, so he gets done talking to them. He acts as he goes away. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait to catch him. These are all hunting words. Lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say, like, we're going to find a way to kill this guy. We're going to find something. This, I think, marks... Something that's been wavering a little bit here, a little bit there, but this marks an absolute rejection. Their minds are now set. We're going to kill Jesus. And in the pro- we're going to make him look bad when we do it. We're going to make him look guilty when we do it. We're going we're to put upon him guilt. And the great irony of it all is that it is exactly what he was going for to take on all of the guilt of you and me, to take the worst sort of punishment and abandonment from God so that he could be on the cross and cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried that cry so that not a single one of us would ever have to. Isn't that wonderful? This is Jesus, all that he endured for us. Take that with you this week. You do not want to fall on the wrong 
side of comprehending and understanding and seeing all who Jesus is. Don't pat yourselves on the back because you got it figured out and you're right and they're wrong. Let the words of God, let the prophecies, let the, the, what the prophets say, what the apostles say, let those things sink home. Don't just honor them with monuments. Let them speak as if they're speaking right to you. How do I need to change? What do I need to do differently? Where ought I to repent? Thank you for bearing with me. I know this was long. I'm going to pray. I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to pray that God will take these words and that they will sink in deep in you. That not a single one of us would say, I'm glad he was listening. I'm glad they were listening. I'm so glad they were here to say it this Sunday because they really needed that. I hope none of you are doing that. I hope every single one of you. I hope nobody's going, I need to get the recording of this to give to such. No. Let it sink in. Lord. Right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask now, and I ask this now for myself as well, Lord, I pray that these words would be taken to heart by us, every single one of us as individuals in this building this morning, Lord, that we would hear these words and ask ourselves those questions. Lord, I pray that if you're, if you're saying this to us, just say it. Woe to you, Matt Harmless, for this is what you've done. Woe to you. Lord, I pray that we would hear those words. Lord, if there's parts in us that need to be just cleansed out and cleaned out and overhauled or just completely demolished. Lord, I pray that your spirit would do that work this week. Lord, I pray that you would help us to embrace that work with joy, with the joy knowing that the need for demolition in our hearts does not mean we are not accepted in Christ. We're accepted because of what he's done not because of what we're doing. Lord, this is all, this is all your great and glorious sanctifying work, helping us to be more like your son on this earth. Help us to embrace it with joy and gladness. I pray these things now in Christ's name, amen.